Our text for today comes from John chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. So last week we covered an entire chapter of the book of the Bible, and this week we are covering two and a half verses. So uh, we'll see what we can do. Most of you are probably familiar with the word shalom. Am I right? You nod your head if you feel like you know that word. It's a word that's kind of common in our day, even though it's not an English word. It's an Old Testament word, and it's the word that's commonly translated in your Bibles if you're reading through the Old Testament, peace. So most of the time when you read the word peace in the Old Testament, the word that is being translated there is this word, shalom. Now, if you look peace up in the dictionary, the most basic definition of that word is simply the absence of war. So if you have peace, then you don't have people fighting, basically, is what the idea means to us in our context. But that definition in no way comes close to capturing the broad range of meaning that the Hebrew word shalom has. It's a dense, it's a far denser word than our idea of peace. Because shalom is not just about the absence of something, rather it is about the presence of something. The most basic understanding of the word shalom is the idea of something being brought to wholeness or completeness. So if something is made whole or complete, it has, it has shalom. So if you take something that was broken, right, and you fix it, like my dishwasher is this morning and I'm planning to do this afternoon, you can bring shalom to your dishwasher, right, by making it whole or complete. If anybody wants to do that, they can come over, right, later. And in the Old Testament, we see people bringing shalom to broken down or incompleted things. This word shalom is used when um, Solomon, King Solomon, completes the temple. It says that he brought peace or shalom to the temple. And multiple times throughout the Old Testament, uh, foreign invaders came in and they knocked down the walls of Jerusalem. And then those walls were reconstructed. They were made whole or complete. And shalom was the idea of bringing wholeness or completeness to these, the, the walls of Jerusalem that were knocked down. But the word has more implications than just the physical, uh, making something physically whole or complete. It also applies to human relationships. In Proverbs verses 16, uh, not verse 16, but chapter, Proverbs 16, 7 says this, When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. That word, that two English words, make peace, is just the one Hebrew word, shalom, meaning to reconcile or heal, to make complete a broken relationship. This carries the same idea as well. You see, it's not just about making peace, this word. It is rather about restoring relationship, bringing wholeness to something that was broken. One way I think about the difference between peace And shalom is the difference between saying I'm sorry and making amends. When I say I'm sorry, I'm trying to make peace, right? Very often I'm just saying I'm sorry so that I can get out of trouble, right? So that we can stop with whatever is going on, right? But making amends is something totally different than that, isn't it? You're not simply, uh, when you're making amends, you're not simply bringing an end to hostility, Making amends is about actively seeking to make right a wrong that has been done to somebody else, right? 
If, I, if you loan me your car and I wreck your car, which hasn't happened, thank God, and I say I'm sorry, that is one thing, right? But making amends is forking over the cash to make things right. Does this make sense? When you make amends with someone, you take active steps to renew a broken relationship with them. That's shalom. That's shalom. And to have shalom between groups of people, not just individuals, but groups of people, is not just about the absence of fighting, but to have an ongoing, healthy, relational environment where people can live full and productive lives. Meaning that in the Old Testament, the word peace is functionally a word about bringing order to human relationships and facilitating human flourishing, human flourishing. Where there is not shalom, there is a lack of peace and therefore a lack of flourishing. And where there is shalom, there is an environment where people can live whole, complete, constructive, flourishing lives under the authority and blessing of God. And this idea of peace and shalom is also carried into the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament idea. It's a different word, obviously, because the New Testament was written in Greek and not in Hebrew, but the idea still holds. The New Testament vision of what Jesus came to do is to usher in the rule or the reign of God's peace. When all peoples, where all peoples are rightly related to God and rightly related to each other. This is basically what we sing about every Christmas time, right? We sing about this, this task that Jesus came in the world to fulfill. But this is not kind of pie-in-the-sky idealism, right? Because there's a way that you can talk about peace that just sounds idealistic. It just sounds kind of like uh, Jesus is a cosmic John Lennon sitting in the sky singing, imagine all the people, right? No, but that's not what this is. Jesus actually understands how serious and how dire this problem is of human conflict, of human strife. He understands how broken and fractured our world is, how racism and tribalism and war have ripped human relationships apart, and how on a personal level things like broken marriages and child abuse leave deep scars on our souls. And so Jesus does not just say, I'm sorry. He makes amends with his own life, with his own body even. The Apostle Paul, talking about this very idea, uh, when he is talking about this very idea, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, um, and in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, he says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, and he's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. In short, Jesus cares so much about our relationships that he stepped into the, racial, the relational divide that was created between us and God and between uh, us and other people by our sin, by our brokenness. To make amends for it through the giving of his own life as a kind of peace offering so that in him all hostility, 
all brokenness, all, frac- all of our fractured relationships can kind of be knit back together into a constructive whole. And so that peace can reign in our relationship with God and in our relationship with other people. And so that is a very long introduction to a sermon series that we're beginning today on relationships, on relationships, where, so over the next four weeks, we'll be opening the scriptures and exploring what we can learn and how we can invite the peace and the shalom of God into our human relationships, because it turns out to be very, very important, because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He does not just want our relationships to exist, right? Under his, under his lordship, Jesus has made it possible for us to create, and I, th- and I think this is really important, he has made it possible for us to create emotional environments where all our different types of human relationships can actually flourish, not just exist. So this week we're going to be talking about friendship, which will be fun, then uh, marriage the following week. On the 17th, we'll be talking about singleness and dating. Yeah. And finally, sorry, I thought I heard somebody get really excited. And finally, right before Thanksgiving causes all of us to be stuck in a room around a hot bird with people we might not be wanting to talk to very much, we'll be talking about family relationships. So I hope that works. (laughs) And by hot, I mean temperature. (laughs) Anyways. So I'm excited for this series, nonetheless. Because when, no, no, but seriously, when you think about it, what is the church? The church is really just a series of interconnected relationships. And so if we want to be a healthy church, we need healthy relationships. And I'm praying that this series will go a long ways to helping us do that. So today, we're covering friendship. Friendship, which is good. Now, friendship may seem like a strange place to begin this series, most likely because it's probably a, a topic that you don't hear covered in church very much. It's a relationship that I don't know if we talk about all that often. Uh, we talk about marriage a lot at, in the church. We talk about singleness and dating, I think, more than friendship. But we don't really talk about friendship all that much, which is funny because in our lifetimes, each of us will have more friends than any other type of relationship in our lives, won't we? Hopefully we have more friends than spouses, that's just generally. More friends than children, though some of you in this church are trying to prove me wrong. Uh, and, more, uh, and more friends than parents and siblings. And yet friendship is, how, uh, is somehow overlooked or underappreciated in our day. It's something we don't address. We just kind of assume that friendship will naturally occur Friendships will naturally occur and that they don't need to be attended to, that they don't need to be worked on. But anyone who has been alive for any amount of time will know friendship is an irreducible component of human life, isn't it? True and lasting friendships are some of, if not the, some of the most formative relationships we will have in our lives. The friendships you, ha- you have right now and have had in the past have determined in large part the trajectory of your life to this point, and into the future. What does everybody who ever, says, who ever gets in trouble say about themselves? They say, I just fell in with the wrong crowd, right? Which always seemed a little bit like a cop-out to me, but anyways, it's true. It's true. 
We know instinctively that the friends we choose affect the, the, both the quality and the trajectory of our lives, but we don't have any significant plan or guidelines in regards to selecting our friends, nor do we really give any thought about how best to be a friend. Every once in a while, you'll have one of those friends who thinks proactively about how to be a good friend to you, and they just make you feel like a bad person, because you're like, I just came to hang out, and you're like thinking about me and doing things for me, and it's so kind. Part of that, part of that issue might be due, in fact, to the kind of increasing isolation in our time, Right? due to social media or other technologies that make it possible for us to basically not leave our houses if we don't want to, have caused a kind of isolation in our time that makes friendship, has changed the quality of friendship, I think, in some ways. Facebook has reduced the word friend to mean any human being that I'm aware of, right, in the world. And even with our friends, the bulk of our interactions are no longer uh, carried out person to person, are they? Friendships are lived over text message or via Xbox Live or Twitch or whatever, right? And so I think technology does have something to do with this. It, it does have, it has caused in our culture a kind of problem within, the, within, within friendships. But I also think our wider culture, not just technology, but our wider culture has aspects to it right now that make friendship very difficult, that actually downgrade the quality of friendship. And, I, I, and for me, and I'm, I'm biased, but I think the primary, one of the primary problems we see with friendship in our day, and I can say this because I am a man in my 30s, I can say without hesitation that men in and around my age are experiencing a crisis of friendship in our time. It's true. Women have... There are great challenges as well, but I'm not as closely acquainted with those, to be honest. Uh, But I do believe that the problem is particularly acute for men in our culture. I really do. This crisis of male friendship is, I think, summed up really well by an author. Her name's Katie Waldman in a Slate.com article. And the article is called, Society Tells Men That Friendship is Girly, Men Respond by Not Having Friends. Right? And this is what she says in the article. American men are starving for friends, writes sociologist Lisa Wade in Salon. Or more precisely, adult, white, heterosexual men have fewer friends than any other group. The friendships they do form are often superficial, involving less support and lower levels of self-disclosure and trust. The sad part is that surveys show that men desire closeness and intimacy from their male friends just as women do. So why don't they have it? Around the age of 15 or 16, Wade suggests, friend-like traits such as emotional openness, vulnerability, supportedness, and caring become risky for boys to show. These qualities get suppressed in favor of self-sufficiency, stoicism, and competitive fire. Ugh, right? It just about sums it up. It's kind of incredibly on the nose when I read it, actually. I also read an article this week that says the the most amount of friends any of us will have peaks out at the ages of between like 22 and 25. And then for the rest of our lives, it kind of goes down slowly. This is a a large part of the reason why I think our post-college years can be so difficult in this country. Because we're constantly surrounded by friends. There's a higher this is for you guys. There's a higher number of friends around you now than, it, than you will ever have in your life. And that number will just decrease over time. 
And so unless you learn the art of friendship in those early years, when you are surrounded by friends, the reality of the situation is that you won't learn how to develop lasting friendships into your adult life. So society is working against us here, isn't it? Most of our relationships are kind of false social media exchanges. Nearly everyone is sitting in their homes, isolating, wishing they had a friend. And white men won't be friends with each other because they think it's girly or something. What are we going to do, right? What are we going to do about it? Well, I think we need to recapture a biblical vision of friendship. I think we need to recapture a kind of biblical vision of friendship. And you may be saying to me, Nick, the Bible doesn't talk about friendship, right? Oh, yes, it does, actually. It talks about friendship a lot. Friendship is one of, if not the primary modes of relationship that the Bible actually addresses, to be honest with you. The New Testament talks about marriage overtly like three times. That's all, really. It's about it. It talks about raising kids a couple of times. But nearly every other social relationship in the New Testament can and I think should be seen through the lens of friendship. Here are some examples. In Acts uh, 4, verse 32, it says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, this might seem like, on the surface of it, not describing friendship. But what Luke is actually describing here is the Greco-Roman ideal of friendship. In the ancient world, when a Greek-speaking person was trying to describe what really good friends were like, they used this, this very, these very same terms. They said they were of one soul or of one heart. This is a way that Greek-speaking people talked about the highest ideal of what friendship was. And here Luke is saying that because of Jesus, these new believers experienced that, that same idealistic level of friendship and connection in and amongst themselves. This is what Luke is saying. Also in Acts, after Peter and John get out of prison, they're arrested. The text tells us that they don't go directly to their family even. They go to their friends. They go to their friend's house. And in the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, those letters near the end of your Bible talk often about friendship. But John refers to the church, to a house church, simply as the friends. The friends. And that does not even begin to scratch the surface of the example that Jesus models for us in the Gospels of close friendship, close friendship. I ran across a tweet a couple, I don't know when it was, it was a while back. Maybe you've heard it, but it it really struck me. The tweet simply said, nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. It's kind of true. It's funny because it's true, right? Jesus enters into real, significant, interdependent relationships with the 12 and with others. And in our teaching text for today, Jesus holds up friendship or self-sacrificial friendship, not just as a good thing to do, but as the highest form of human love which is startling. Now, this passage is basically sandwiched in the middle of Jesus' journey to the cross, and so we have to read it in the light of what Jesus is going to do for all of humanity on the cross when he is literally going to lay down his life for his friends. But like most of what Jesus says in the scriptures, his actions and his words are meant to be paradigmatic for us. They are things that we are meant to emulate. 
And if, and if we notice Jesus' life itself, Jesus, and just pay close attention here, Jesus was not married, right? Jesus did not have kids, but he did have friends, correct? And it is to these friends that he reveals his deepest struggles and fears. He breaks bread with these friends. He washes their feet. He even shows Peter and James and John, his three closest friends, that he is literally the son of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now we can see that as a lot of things, but what it is is just kind of being transparent with his close buddies. Guys, I got something to tell you, right? (laughs) Jesus lived vulnerable transparent, love-filled relationships with friends, and he holds friendship up as one of the highest examples of what human love can be. He does this, and yet we ignore it, right? We think friendship is just a luxury, something that I will do if I have time for it, something that is great if I can fit it into my schedule, right? But it is simply untrue. It's untrue from a biblical point of view. Healthy relationships are mandatory if we want to be healthy and growing people. This is mandatory for us. If Jesus could not live without them, neither can we. Jesus was able to live without being married. He was able to live without having kids, but he was not able to live without friends. But how do we actually grow in this area of our lives, right? How do we learn the art of friendship? And it is an art, I think. And there is just, uh, and so what I want to do with you this morning is just be incredibly practical for the rest of our time. I kind of laid out what I think is a biblical vision of why friendship is important and what it should look like. But for the rest of our time this morning, I just wanted to kind of talk from experience about what I've experienced friendship to be, some of the struggles that I've experienced in my life as a friend with other people. And hopefully just help us kind of see a little bit more clearly maybe what God is calling us to step into or how he's calling us to adjust or respond to this call or to this realization that in the kingdom of God, friendship is paramount. It's paramount. So first, just like I said, this is going to be very practical. First, we just got to put ourselves out there. (laughs) It sounds like dating advice, I know, but you just got to put yourself out there. After college, I moved home for a little while, and I worked for a builder. His name was Rajon. He was a French-Canadian Scientologist. Um, That's another story for another day. Uh, But I worked for him for a little while, and after I worked for him for a little while, I moved to the Twin Cities where I went to grad school. And I, I moved to a town where I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends. I had no real connection. The only reason I was there was because of school. And I remember sitting in the library and seeing a guy who I thought, ah, oh, I think we could be friends. And he was sitting at a, at a desk studying a few tables down. And I, was, I said to myself, like, how do I, how do I make a friend? <laughs> how, do, how, do, how do you do this, right? How do you actually make a conscious decision to make a friend? And it felt horribly awkward, partially because of some of the things we talked about uh, that males are laid down with in our culture, right? So I just walked up to him and I said, hi, Spencer, do you want to hang out? And he looked at me and said, absolutely, right? I just began the conversation of having a friendship and Spencer turned out to be my best friend while I was up in seminary, a guy we lived, we lived together with a couple other guys for a while. It became this really rich friendship that I learned a lot from in my life. 
You see, it is incredibly hard to make friends in our adult lives. Right? It's difficult. It's difficult. And it's even harder to turn our kind of loose connections that we have to people who, like, get, serve coffee or who we run into at, the, at, at Hy-Vee or something. It's even harder to turn those relationships into the kind of deep and rich relationships that we are called to have, Right? And it requires intentionality. It requires intentionality. It's about intentionally reaching out to people who might possibly want to be your friend, right? It's about being vulnerable enough to do that. And then once you're in the relationship, being vulnerable enough to be your true self in that relationship. To let the kind of facade of my false or my public-facing self fall away so that I can enter into a genuine relationship. This turns out to be difficult as well. And we need to learn about how to be intentionally to be good friends to other people. Have you ever been in a relationship with a, with a user, right? Not a loser. We've all been in a relationship with a loser or two. But a user, a friend who you're like, you only come and talk to me because of what I can do for you, right? We're only hanging out because of what, you can, because of what we think we can do for one another. But there's not this like kind of genuine, deep-seated friendship that, that exists in that place. And I think part of why friendship is so difficult in our time is that we are always jockeying for position in our culture. We all are always comparing. Some of us are more competitive than others, but competition comes into these types of relationships, and it becomes very hard to simply love, serve, and sacrifice for a friend. Even the fact that I'm saying love, serve, and sacrifice for a friend might sound strange to you because we don't hear that language around friendship, but it's clear that that's what we're supposed to do. This is exactly what Jesus said in our teaching text for today, right? That to lay down one's life for one's friend is, uh, is one of the highest forms of love that we can experience. It's so important, and very often what it requires on our part is simply being vulnerable enough to put ourselves out there and to make a friend, to hang out with someone. And again, I don't mean to harp on men, uh, but I find this to be true in my own life. Men, ask each other to hang out. Seriously. Invite a friend to do something with you. We don't do this, do we? Men in this culture just don't do that very often. Maybe they have one or two people, but as they get older, they kind of shut themselves off from personal relationships, and it becomes incredibly difficult. And I want to just say to you men, ask each other out on a date. Kind of, not really, but kind of, right? Hang out, do something together. Feel, uh, uh, be, have a common experience together over which you can build a long and lasting friendship. Which leads to the second thing. Friendships are formed through common interests and shared passion, but their purpose is to help us to become more like Christ. Right? This is the purpose of friendship. C.S. Lewis, who has written more on this idea of friendship and, and better on this idea of friendship than almost anybody, if you want to begin, he wrote a little book called The Four Loves. And one of the Greek words for love is philia, which means f uh, friendship love. Uh, That's where we get the word Philadelphia from. Uh, and he talks a lot about this, this filial love, this love between friends. And Lewis says in that book and in other places that friendship really happens, that friendship occurs at that moment when you and someone else, where you say to someone else, oh, you too, you too. There's this moment of shared experience that binds people together in friendship. 
And this is very important, and it is, all, and it is often the beginning of friendship. Two people ha- who share some common interest or some, some shared experience. But the Bible makes quite clear that that is not the end goal of true friendship in the biblical sense. True friendship, and Jesus makes this quite clear, has some other component to it. It has an, a component of encouragement. It, it has a component, a component of helping your friend be more like Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 Uh, beginning in verse 24, says it this way. And he says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, or as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. When is the last time you really uh, handed somebody the reins to your life and said, Help me grow in my faith? When's the last time you did that with somebody who wasn't a spouse? You don't need to answer, but it's a good question to ruminate on for a moment, isn't it? When is the last time you encouraged someone else intentionally in their faith and and spurred them on to love and good deeds? Have you had friendships in your life who have called things out of you that you didn't even know were in there? But yet due to this uh, this close bond, this personal relationship, you were, you were called up to your higher or better self as a follower of Jesus and as a person in the world. We know that good friends can do this, but yet we don't always enter into the types of relationships that pull us in that direction. When you are a part of a, of a friendship and, or of a group of friends that is able to support you, is able to encourage you, is able to Uh, call out of you the reality of who God wants you to be. That becomes a beautiful, beautiful thing. And while just hanging out and just doing things is very often the door to real and significant friendship, it is not the end goal in and of itself. The the theologian Wesley Hill says it this way. He He says, Christian friendship isn't just about grabbing a drink or dinner or vacationing together. Those are good things, even great things even that need to be celebrated, and all of which can look like things we do together as being these kinds of of friends to one another. But Christian friendship is also about the fact that we are friends and family because we have been united around a common father and a common older brother. He means Jesus. It is about keeping and encouraging each other in the faith and fighting for one another's souls. Friendship is no longer simply... uh, Friendship no longer simply exists for the goodness of the friendship in and of itself. It exists to remind one another of the glory of God who created us in his image. It's a high calling for a, for a thing, isn't it? For a form of relationship. It's an important thing. And we need to have friendships that call us up to live in friendship with other people for the glory of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now, my final word for this morning is just a pastoral encouragement to all of you as we, it's really kind of aspirational. Everything I usually say on Sunday mornings does have an element of aspiration to it. It's something that we want to see. But this one specifically, I want to see Grace Community Church become a community of friends. Become a community of friends. Church should be the place in all the world 
where we are able and freed up to develop real, lasting, deep friendships that help us to flourish. This is what church should be, right? Because sometimes you just want to go someplace where everybody knows your name. (laughs) And they're always glad you came, right? Sorry, that's stupid. Uh, The biblical vision of the local church is that we would be a community of friends. That's what it is. Filled, uh, and that the church building itself would be filled with smaller, overlapping networks of friendships. Now, even in a room this size, we can't all be friends, right? The uh, studies show that the average adult American, even the really high-functioning extrovert, can only maintain about 12 relationships in and of themselves, significant relationships, uh, at any given time. You go over the number of 12 and somebody's kind of falling off the list. My, uh, my father-in-law said to me one time, Nick, you know, a pastor can grow a church by 12 people a year. It's just a different 12 people every year. Because you only have, all of us only have space for about 12 significant relationships. And, and so for, in order for a church to be healthy, in order for it to grow, in order for it to be a thriving place, we have to be a network of overlapping and interconnecting relationships. So hopefully in the church, the church becomes this place where I can find and be filled up and be encouraged by these deep friendships and relationships. It should be a place where we can, we can be vulnerable with one another, where I'm free to share my, my difficulties, my sins, my struggles, my hang-ups, and I'm in that place able to receive consolation, encouragement, and upbuilding. This is what the church should be. It should be a place that is comfortable for you to be. Because your friends are there. Very often we think of church as this, thing, as this monologue that we're experiencing right now, right? It's a place where I come and I sit and I listen and then I get up and I go and I leave. And the reality is that that's what the, the church was never meant to be that. It was supposed to be a community of people who put on display the healing that God can bring to relationships through the purpose of person of Jesus. It was meant to be the, a community of shalom in the world, pointing to all the other people in the world that this is the place where God's peace resides. This is the place where our relationships get healed. This is the place where we step into the fullness of who we were created to be. That's what the church is. It is not about a monologue. As much as you are listening to me talk right now. It is a place where we need to find support and comfort. Where some of the deepest needs of our heart to know and to be known can be fulfilled. As we step into loving and God honoring relationships with one another. This is what the church should be. And if I'm being honest with you. If I'm being honest with you, I think most people in our culture and most Christians in our world are living below the poverty line relationally. They might not even know it, but they're living below the poverty line relationally. And so we need to, and so my heart, my desire, my hope, my prayer is that Grace Community Church would become a church that's simply a community of friends. That we become a, that God would grow us by His Spirit into a community of people who are interconnected with one another, who love one another, who live in friendship with one another, who build one another up, and who worship Jesus together, who live under the rule and reign of God as friends with support and love and encouragement. And because of that, 
we see each other's lives flourish. We see flourishing lives lived under the rule and reign of God. And without friendship, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So, what are our next steps today? Right? Who do I need to go talk to? Who's that person? What do I need to do to be a better friend? Right? How do I need to step out of my comfort zone in order to be a better friend? Have I been a bad friend to people? Have I gossiped or spoken poorly of a person behind their back who's my actual friend? And what I need to do is uh, see that friendship as a, as, a, as a relationship that I need to lay my life down for that other person. I have not always been a person who's been supporting and loving in friendships, and so I need to repent of that, and I need to ask God to help me be a better friend, right? I need to go out of my way out of my way to maybe take like three minutes after church and just hang out long enough that maybe I can develop a relationship that would last a while. Maybe I need to come a few minutes early on a on, hey, pastor stuff, right? Just a few minutes early on a Sunday in order to build a relationship with somebody that could make, that could make a lasting impact in my life. These are all just practical things that maybe the Spirit is speaking, you to, speaking to you this morning about ways in which you need to step into his call to be a friend under the Lordship of Jesus. To learn to love and to care for other people in ways that you did not know were possible. And, and to know and how to receive the self-sacrificial love of others for your own well-being and upbuilding. This is what it means to be a friend. And my, my instinct is, my instinct this morning is, that we are all in our own hearts probably thinking of one or two things that uh, God might be speaking to our hearts of a way that we can be a better friend or a way that I have been a poor friend or a way that I can put myself out there in a sense in order to become or to make myself available to be a friend. In, not just in service to God and not just for my own, upbringing, my own well-being, but for the health and the vitality of this church and this community and of all the people we come into contact with. God wants to invite us into his shalom, into his peace, into his relational harmony. And if we uh, step into what it means to be friends in the biblical sense of the word, we'll see that expand in ways that we never thought possible. Would you stand with me this morning? As we pray. So here's what I want to do with just our last couple of minutes. Whatever that thing is that you were thinking when I was speaking, whatever that thing is that God might be speaking to your heart this morning, I just, as I pray for you, I just want you to kind of hold it up in your heart and in your mind and just ask God to help you with it. Just ask, maybe, maybe, and this is possible, maybe there's somebody you need to go make amends with, right? Maybe you've wronged someone and you've said, I'm sorry, but you need to go make amends with that person. You actually have to go make it right. Ashley reminded me that there's a, this, there's a Daniel Tiger song that says, um, saying, I'm st saying I'm sorry is the fir first step, then how can I help, right, is the second step. It's true. It's very true. And God longs for us. He longs for us to step into those things. 
So I'm just going to pray with you. And what, what I just ask is that you hold that thing up to God, whatever you were thinking this morning, and that you would ask for his help as we step into the fullness of what it means to be friends in the kingdom of God. Father, we love you. And we're so thankful that you call us your friend. That, uh, that you have invited us into this close, intimate relationship of friendship with the creator of the universe. That you have gone out of your way to make amends with us. To, to uh, bring peace, to bring shalom into our relationship with God. And because of that reality, would you help us in this place? to be better friends ourselves, having experienced the friendship of God? Would we go from this place seeking to be friends with others, seeking to put the needs of others ahead of our own needs, seeking to maybe put ourselves out there in some way, shape, or form, seeking to be people who don't just say, I'm sorry, but rather make amends, making ourselves vulnerable, making ourselves open and available to those people in our midst. And God, we just pray wholeheartedly and sincerely this morning that you would make Grace Community Church a community of friends, a a healthy emotional environment where we can have these overlapping and interconnecting relationships of friendship that you would knit us together as kingdom people and as friends. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are still donuts available. Take them.